Section 92 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Book Third Departure of the Kashmir, Chapter One The Havilet Quite Close to the Church. St. Samson cannot have a crowd without St. Pierre being deserted. A curious thing, at any given point, is a suction pump. News travels rapidly in small communities. The great matter in Guernsey, beginning with sunrise, was to go and take a look at the Durand's smokestack in front of Mesletterie's windows. Every other event was eclipsed in the presence of this one. Eclipse of the death of the dean of saint Asaph. There was no longer any question of the Reverend Ebenezer Caudray, nor of his sudden wealth, nor of his departure by the Kashmir. The engine of the Durand brought back from the Douvres, such was the order of the day. People did not believe it. The shipwreck had appeared extraordinary, but salvage seemed impossible. They vied with each other in making sure of the fact with their own eyes. Every other occupation was suspended. Long files of bourgeois in families, from the Vessin neighbored, to the Mess, men, women, gentlemen, mothers with children, children with their dolls, betook themselves along all the roads towards the thing to see at Les Braves, and turned their backs on St. Pierre-Port. Many shops in St. Pierre-Port were closed. In the commercial arcade there was absolute stagnation of sales and negotiations. All attention was absorbed by the Durande. Not a merchant had made his first sale, with the exception of a jeweler, who was much amazed to have sold a wedding ring, to a sort of man who seemed in great haste, and who had inquired of him where the house of Monsieur the Dean was situated. The shops which remained open were places for gossip, where the miraculous salvage was noisily discussed. Not a promenader on the Hivreuse, which is now called, no one knows why, Cambridge Park, no one in High Street, which was then called Grand Rue, nor in Smith Street, which was then called the Rue des Forges, no one in Hauteville. The Esplanade itself was deserted. One would have taken it for Sunday. A royal highness on a visit, reviewing the militia at Aneres, would not have emptied the town more thoroughly. All this disorder in consequence of a mere nothing at all of that Gilliatt who made grave men and correct persons shrug their shoulders. The church of St. Pierre-Port, a triple gable in juxtaposition with transept and spire, is situated at the water's edge near the extremity of the port, almost at the very landing. It welcomes those who arrive and bids the departing Godspeed. This church is the capital letter of the long line which the façade presents to the town. It is, at the same time, the parish church of St. Pierre-Port and deanery of the whole island. It has for its officiating priest, the surrogate of the bishop, a clergyman endowed with plenary powers. The haven of St. Pierre-Port, a very fine and very large harbor at the present day, was at that epoch, and even only ten years ago, less considerable than the port of St. Sampson. There were two huge cyclopean curving walls starting from the shore on starboard and port 
and almost uniting at their extremities, where there was a small white lighthouse. Below this lighthouse a narrow entrance, still having the double ring of the chain which closed it in the Middle Ages, gave passage to ships. Let the reader picture to himself the half-open claw of a lobster. This was the haven of St. Pierre-Port. This claw took from the abyss a little sea, which it forced to remain quiet. But when there was an east wind the waves poured through the narrow channel, the harbor was covered with a choppy sea, and it was wiser not to enter. This is what the Kashmir had done that day. She had anchored in the roads. When the wind was from the east, vessels preferred to take this course, especially as it relieved them from port dues. In that case the boatmen licensed by the town, a brave tribe of mariners whom the new port has driven to beggary, came with their boats to the landing, or to stations on the beach, to get the voyagers, and transported them and their baggage, often through very tough seas, and always without accident, to the ships about to sail. The east wind is a slanting wind, very good for the trip to England. The vessel rolls, but does not pitch. When the ship to sail was in port, everyone embarked in the port. When it lay in the roads, a person had his choice of embarking from one of the points on the shore near the moorings. There were boatmen, unlicensed, in all the inlets. The Hablet was one of these inlets. This tiny harbor was quite close to the town, but so deserted that it seemed very far off. It owed its solitude to being encased in the lofty cliffs of Fort George, which commands this retired cove. The Hablet could be reached by many paths. The most direct skirted the edge of the water. It possessed the advantage of leading to town and to the church in five minutes, and the inconvenience of being covered by the waves twice a day. The other paths, more or less abrupt, plunged into the crevices of the cliffs. The Havilette lay in shadow, even in broad daylight. Blocks out of the perpendicular were suspended everywhere. It bristled with a dense mass of nettles and undergrowth, which formed a sort of gentle night over this disorder of rocks and waves. Nothing could be more peaceful than this inlet in calm weather, nothing more tumultuous when the water was rough. There were tips of branches there, perpetually damp with foam. In spring it was full of flowers, nests, perfumes, birds, butterflies, and bees. Thanks to recent improvements, these things no longer exist. They have been replaced by fine, straight lines. There are bits of masonry, keys, and little gardens. Embankments have become popular. Taste has executed justice on the singularities of the cliffs and the irregular-shaped rocks. End of chapter 1. The Havilet quite close to the church.